Thank you for this time in your holy word. We're praying that you'll pour out the spirit of God upon us so that the word will come into our souls and into our minds in his power and Holy Spirit power. Holy Spirit power to save and Holy Spirit power to sanctify. We pray for the work of the Holy Spirit in this room today. We ask you, our Father, for our boys and girls who are downstairs hearing the word of God from their teachers and ask for the same. Open the eyes of their understanding that they may believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And some of them have. May they be matured and grown up in Christ and in his grace today. We ask for all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So seven times, I remind you, seven times in the book of Hebrews, we have the word better. Christ is better, 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 seven times better. He is superior to, he is better than anything else you might compare him to. He's even better than angels. And that's what the author of the Hebrews is arguing this morning. And he's arguing it for a reason. Let me drop back and we'll build up to that reason. What was the problem these Hebrew believers were facing? Why is the author addressing them as he does? Well, there were, were many Hebrew believers, but some of them possessed Christ and some of them merely professed Christ. And he's especially concerned about the second group, the ones who seem to have merely professed Christ, but they're not the real deal. They, they have a form of godliness, but they're denying its power to really save their souls and to turn them. And they're in danger of walking back, probably primarily due to persecution at different levels, at some levels very fierce for some of them. And they're thinking, life was better with Moses, I'm going back. Life was better when I was just a plain old Jew, I'm going back. Uh, life was better when I was in the old covenant, I'm going back. Besides, Jesus is just a dead rabbi, and his blood is just common blood. That's going to be in later chapters. He's nobody special. So I'm going to go back to something very special. I'm going back to Moses and the old covenant and the law of Moses. And one of the, one of the building blocks in their argument for going back there was this, because that law and that covenant was delivered by angels. Christ didn't look like an angel. He looked like man, and he suffered like a man, and he died like a man, and I'm suffering following him, and I don't like the suffering. I want to go back to the glory. I want to go back to the angels. So it's not that they were all into angels. It's that they were into Moses. They were into the old covenant. They were into the law, and they're very tempted to leave Christ, to walk back their faith, to deconstruct, if you will, the term we hear in our day, and to go back to something else. There are always temptations for believers and professors alike to go back to something else. For you, it might not be the law. It might not be the old covenant. It might not be angels. But there are temptations to go back to something you had in life or to something that the world is alluring you with right now. There's a temptation to leave Christ and go back. The whole book is about hold on to Christ. Don't leave him. Remain, be steadfast, continue believing and repenting. Keep on following Jesus Christ. Don't let go. Don't go back because Christ is better, 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 seven times better. Now, the subject of angels came up in chapter 1, and it continues all the way down through chapter 2 and uh, verse 16, I believe it is. 
But we're in 2, 5 through 9 today. So what we're doing is, what's going on in our passage today is, he's teaching them about Christ, angels, and humans in this world versus Christ, angels, and humans in the world to come, and what the pecking order is in, in which, and which world really matters. So they were imagining Christ was not superior to angels in this world, but he, need, he needs them to understand that Christ is very superior to angels now, seated up there in the heavenlies and in the world to come. Let's start to look at it. Are you all with me? All right, thank you. It's a, it's a challenging passage, but I'm going to try and make it unchallenging, and may the Spirit of God help. Hebrews 2.5, 4, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. So he's dealing with their souls about eternity of which we are speaking. He's dealing with their souls about the world to come. That's heaven or that's hell. And that's what we're dealing with here. And he says, all right, let's go to heaven. Who's it subject to? It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Here's the big point. Yes, angels are above humans now, especially in our fallenness. But even from creation on, angels have been above humans. We're made for a little while lower than they are. Angels are above. How are they above? Well, they can fly. So how's that for starters? They can appear and disappear. How's that for starters? They bring direct messages from God to humans. So we're doing pretty good here in the middle of the story. Uh, how about the fact that when they appear, they terrify people? You don't terrify people when you appear. Well, maybe you do. I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully not. Um, angels are in a very, very special place, kind of above us for this little time, this world and this life. But there's a world to come, and that world to come, it, it will be a different pecking order. That's what he wants to say. And the world to come is not subjected to angels of which we are speaking. So there's a, a world to come, and he's comparing that to the world that is now. So let's take a little while right there and just think about that world to come and the world that is now, because this depends on it. This is the world that is now. Duh, obvious. And how long does it last? Well, a day, because a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. It doesn't last long. Your life doesn't last long. James says, what is your life? It's a vapor. It's gone. You appear for a little while, and then it is gone. That's human life. Don't blink. It's gone. You'll be in the coffin. Cheery news, huh? So your life is short. This whole age, this whole world is short because the next world, the new heavens and the new earth, is eternal. It goes on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So however long you think this universe has been here and will be here, it's nothing. It's the batting of an eye. This is not the big story of you and your life. That will be the big story of you and your life. You'll be in heaven forever and ever and ever, or in hell forever and ever and ever. Please believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and go to heaven forever and ever. So there was a world to come. That's important enough. We need to think about that enough that I want to pause and bring in a few other scriptures. There's a world to come, and then we're going to see it's not subjected to angels. But let's focus on the world to come. Let's take it apart a little bit. Peter writes about this in 2 Peter 3, 10 through 13. Here it is. But the day of the Lord, that's his second coming. That's the last day. That's judgment day. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. What's that mean? Unexpectedly. 
And then, what will happen then? The heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That's really going to happen. He's not making this up. This isn't fiction. This is where this earth, this life is headed. This is where it's all going. Verse 11, implications. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But, according to his promise, we are waiting. What are you doing? You're waiting. How are you spending your life? I'm waiting. We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Righteousness permeates it. That's what Peter teaches us. So it's not to angels that God subjected that world, the world to come, of which we are speaking. That world comes up again in Revelation 21.1. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. What's John teaching us? There's a world to come. There's this world, and there's a new world, a new heaven, and a new earth. If you're in Christ, you'll be there. You'll be there forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. You're here for the batting of an eye. You're there forever, eternally. No end to it, ever, ever. That's you in Christ. And what about that then? Back to Hebrews 2.5. So, it was not to angels that God subjected that the world to come of which we are speaking. Our big concern, the thing we're talking about in the whole book and in the whole Bible is you and eternity, heaven and hell, forever and ever, in Christ, not in Christ. And it was not to angels that God subjected that new heavens and new earth. So, all right, in our minds for a moment, let's go visit that new heavens and new earth. Who's there? Who's there? All right, so God is there. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Trinitarian God is there. Who else is there? Believers, the saints, I think I heard somebody say. Everybody who's in Christ is there. The redeemed by the blood of Christ, they're all there. Who else is there? Well, he's a saint. What do you got going from Malachi, bro? So angels. Angels, cherubim, cherubim as well. We'll lump that into one category. So there's God, and there's angels, and there's humans. That's all there is in the world to come. Well, there's probably dogs and cats too, but you know, we're not counting them. They don't, they don't need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't have sin. They don't have souls. They're not eternal souls like believers. Anyway, getting into the weeds. So when we get to heaven, who's in charge? God. Who's next? The redeemed. That's what he's going to say. So not to angels did he subject the world to come. No, he's going to go on to say to redeemed humans and to Christ, glorified, empowered at the right hand of the Father. 
So he's arguing with them. You see, he's messing with them. Why do you want to go back to angel? Why do you want to go back to the old covenant and Moses and the law just as one of your building blocks? Well, because angels delivered it. No, you've got to understand, angels for a time, we're submitted under a little lower than them for a time. Christ was, appeared lower than them for a time in the days of his humanity and days of his incarnation while on the earth. But for all of eternity, it's God, then redeemed humans, then angels, who are two, two, ministering spirits sent for those who are going to inherit salvation. Now, like a good Bible teacher, he's going to back it up. He's going to take us to an Old Testament scripture and prove what he's talking about. And it's a rich scripture. It's Psalm 8. Psalm 8 that he's going to quote from is a celebration of the majesty of God and the dignity of human beings. Pretty cool. God's majesty and our dignity. One has written, Psalm 8 is, quote, an ode on the majesty of God and the insignificance yet remarkable dignity of humans. So we're going to do a little bit of anthropology. We're going to study who we are. What are humans? What is an anthropos? What is a man? What is a woman? And in Psalm 8, we have God's creation and the universe in all its glory, and we humans, by comparison, by comparison, seems so small and so insignificant. All right, he quotes it in Hebrews 2, starting in verse 6. It has been testified somewhere, that's Psalm 8. The psalmist says, what is man? Now, right before that, he had talked about the glory of God's creation. Our author doesn't quote that part, but here's what comes next. So what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Have you ever felt your own insignificance? You have. Have you ever felt your own teeniness? You have. When, when do you feel that most? Well, maybe when you're in the high desert of California, like we were in the middle of the night, driving north, and one of the kids in the back seat, facing backwards in our nine passenger seat, said, look at the stars. We pulled over and we all got out and just stood there. You can see in the high desert of California, and man, it made you feel this big. Or you go to the Grand Canyon, it makes you feel this big. Or you go to the ocean and the size, the mass of the water and the sky above it is just kind of staggering and it makes you feel this big. And that's what the psalmist is doing. He's saying, in light of the glory of creation, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? Now he's going to identify us. We're doing anthropology. God, angels, humans, where do we fit in? Verse 7, you made him, man, humans, for a little while lower than the angels. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. So right now is that little while. And right now, don't bat your eyes or it's all gone and you're in glory or hell. Right now, we are a little lower than angels, even though they can zoom around and appear. And so, well, because they can zoom around and appear. We're a little lower than them right now, but that's only now. And notice what he says about humans. Here's you. You are in verse 7. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. That's you for a little while. It's temporary. It won't be in glory. And you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Stop there. So what's he referring to here? He's in Genesis chapter 1 doing anthropology. What are humans? Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. And God made humans, and he said, you are made in my image. He never said that to angels. 
And he said to them, I want you to exercise dominion over creation. He never said that to angels. So at creation and before the fall, we were made with unbelievable glory and dignity, made in the image of God. And we were made to exercise dominion over everything. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Angels weren't put in charge of the world. Humans were put in charge of the world. All this to say, what are you going back to angels for? What are you going back to Moses for? What are you going back to the old covenant? Stay with Christ. However, well, I'll tell you what. Let's read that a little bit. Let's go back to Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Is your dog created in the image of God? No. You got there. Is your, how about your cat? I know your cat is not created in the image of God. Do you have a horse? Is your horse created in the image of God? No. Is your child created in the image? Yes. Is your husband? Yes. Is your wife? Yes. Are your neighbors? Yes. Are all humans? Yes. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Now, what does he say? And let them, so that in that image, there is glory and there is honor. We're made like God. And let them have dominion. And then he names everything. Over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. That's what he made us for. That's before the fall. So... So there was great glory and great honor to being made in the image of God. There was dominion over everything that was given to humans. That's who you are. Shakespeare, who, who, so much of what he wrote is rooted in a biblical understanding and a biblical worldview. And in Hamlet, Act 2, Scene 2, this is a famous piece from, from Shakespeare. He says... What a piece of work is a man. Now, don't get that wrong. We use that in a derogatory sense in our day. We'll say, Howard, he's a piece of work. Pardon me, Howard. That's not what he means. He means this in an exalting way. What a piece of work. God's workmanship is a man, a human. How noble in reason. How infinite in faculty. In form and moving, how express and admirable. In action, how like an angel. In apprehension, how like a god. The beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. And yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? He's got Psalm 8 in his blood right there. It's really wonderful. So that's us at creation, crowned above all earthly creatures, crowned above Angels, to have dominion over all of God's creation. Angels didn't. To be made in the image of God. Angels weren't. But, let's, let's go back to Hebrews 2.8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. And I'm going to put in a but. There's not one in the original. There's not one in our, But there's an idea there. But, at present, now, this is the present, not in the age to come, but at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Why not? What chapter of the Bible? Genesis 3. The fall. 
So everything was put in subjection to Adam and Eve and their progeny, and it would have been forever, except they fell. What were some of the immediate effects of the fall? What happened? Now farming becomes rough. Thorns and thistles, and the soil does not cooperate, and the soil does not obey you. Now having children is going to be painful. In pain you'll bear children. In pain you'll bring them forth. Now there's going to be marital conflict because your desire will be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And so all kinds of trouble fell upon us because of our fall. And at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to us. Is that right? Calvin calls all kinds of natural disasters, all things of fallenness in the natural world, he calls them tokens of the fall. He says, now wild beasts ferociously attack us. And they do. Many a man, many a woman has been killed by a wild beast. Boys and girls have been killed by a wild beast. Justin and Gabby, their boy Ezra was just bit by a dog in the face. An uncle's dog. That wouldn't have happened before the fall. Things aren't subject to us anymore. And the world is a dangerous place. Why are there tsunamis? Why are there tornadoes? Why are there earthquakes? Why does the earth open up and swallow people sometimes? Why are there floods? Why is there famine? Why are there all kinds of natural disasters? Because we fell, and it was important that God expressed to us that he punctuate the enormity of the horror of our fall. And if the earth had just gone on a peaceful, wonderful place, there would have been no punctuation. There would have been no bold points. Look what you've done. But every tornado is bold points from God saying, look what you've done. Look how terrible is your fall. And every illness and every disease and every famine and every earthquake, all those things, why are they here? Why did God do that? To accentuate what happened so we'll pay attention and seek him. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to us. Debbie and I have two parakeets. They're teeny. I don't know what they weigh. They must weigh like an ounce apiece. And I want to do parakeets well to the glory of God. So I have a relationship. We each have a relationship with our parakeets. Every morning, one of us, it varies, gets them up. We cover their cage in a big dark cloth. We call it the darkness. We cover them in the darkness. And we take the darkness off in the morning. We give them water. We give them food. We stay and interact with them a little bit. They got some bells. I ring the bells, talk to the birds, whistle and stuff. And so I have a relationship. When I come up later for some more coffee, I'll probably go over and talk to the birds a little bit. And throughout the day, the birds, the birds, the birds. And at 730 at night, it's time for them to go to bed. And we'll put the big darkness halfway on them. So it's gradual. The sun doesn't suddenly go down. And then later on, it comes all the way down. But before it comes all the way down, I'll open their door and stick my finger in there. And they're down here, and they want to sleep up there on that rope. So I'll put my finger on one of them down here on the perch and say, step up. And it'll step right up on my finger. And now we're having some human bird time. We're having some relationship time. And, and he's pretty much, that one's very submissive. He'll step right up there, and I'll ride him around a little bit, talk to him. Eventually, I'll put him up on the rope. And that'll go to get the other one. He, he's not submissive. So... Half of the time when I start going toward him, he goes nuts in the cage. He's flying and flapping and going all over the place like, I'm not going on your finger. And the other half of the time, instead of doing that, he just flies straight up to the rope where I'm going to put him. Like, I'm here already. You don't need to touch me. I usually make him get on my finger anyway, up there on that rope. Step up. 
you. He's trying not to. He's going sideways up the cage and stuff. I step up. He gets on there. We finally f settle that down. Then we cover him up all the way. That's our thing with our birdies. Why am I telling you? I can't get a parakeet to submit to me. Now we do not yet see all things subject to him. Hebrews 2.9. But... We see him, the archetypal human, the second Adam. We see him. Here's what we do see now. We see him who for a little while, we're back to a little while. We are made for a little while lower than the angels, and he for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, in the days of his earthly pilgrimage, in the days of his incarnation still on the earth. He, was, he appeared lower than angels. Yeah, you Hebrews are right. We're going to leave Jesus. He just looked human. He's just a dead rabbi. He suffered a lot. We're going back to Moses. They had angels. He says, well, Christ, you're right. Christ appeared a little while lower than the angels. But we see him now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, death for the atonement of your sins, death for your redemption, death to purchase for you everlasting life, death to forgive you of all your trespasses, death to give you everlasting new life in your soul, so that by the grace of God he might taste death, taste death for everyone. Yes, in the day of his incarnation, he was, appeared lower than the angels because he appeared human. And you humans appear lower than the angels, and you are for now, for a little time. And Christ for a little time was. But listen, where is he now? He is crowned with glory and honor because he suffered. See the point there? So there's a dig in that for them. You guys, all right, you're suffering? Suffer. That's how you get to glory and honor. Suffer. Hold fast. Get persecuted. That's how you get the crown of glory. Jesus suffered, and now he's crowned with glory and honor that by the grace of God he might taste of death for everyone. Christ, where is he now? He's at the right hand of the Father. Glorified. All authority on heaven and earth has been given unto him. All things were made by him and through him and for him, and in him all things consist. That's Jesus Christ. Why are you going to leave him seated in glory at the right hand of the Father? For angels. And there's more. The author of Hebrews doesn't talk about it, but I'm going to because some other scriptures do. That glory and honor, that or something like it, is what we are headed to, destined for, in Christ. You are headed for glory and honor. What we lost at the fall, we will more than regain in glory. Let me read you a couple of the resurrection passages. We're going to jump over to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. This version of you, this is the perishable version. It doesn't last forever. It's going to come to an end. You're going to die. It is, but, but there's an imperishable version of you if you're in Christ. It is sown in dishonor. Is that true? Sown is figure of speech for put into the grave. It's in dishonor. The dishonor, 
that many humans suffer before they finally go to the grave. Someone else has to bathe you. Someone else has to change you. The, the dishonor of that. It is raised in glory. In Christ you will be raised. You will be raised in glory. I don't know how impressed upon us what glory means. It's way greater than this, but I'm just going to give a little teeny illustration that might help. Have you been to the ophthalmologist, and did they put those drops in your eyes that dilated your eyes, and then on a sunny day you had to walk out in the parking lot and find your car? And man, everything is bright. Like, I'm squinting. You barely can see. That's, that's a little earthy illustration for glory. You'll be raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. That's you in Christ. You'll be there with Christ in glory. A little later in the chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, 48, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. Adam, you're in Adam. And as is the man of heaven, that's Christ, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. John picks up on this in 1 John 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Not even in 1 Corinthians 15. We get little glimpses there. But we don't know exactly how, what's heaven going to be like? Who knows? God knows. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. In Christ, you'll be like him because we shall see him as he is. And the redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ will be co-heirs with him. Angels aren't. And they will they will judge angels, Paul tells us elsewhere. Human, he says to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, do you not know that you will judge angels? That's right, at judgment day, when God judges the fallen angels, you'll be there with him and you'll say, amen. You affirm that judgment. You're going to judge angels. God hasn't submitted the world to come to them. He submitted the world to come to you. And right now we see Christ at the right hand of the Father, crowned with glory and honor, and so shall you be. So don't leave Jesus Christ. You'll go to hell. And it's forever and ever, and there's no glory, and there's no honor. There's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Some applications. Number one. I want to point out to you that the devil will use anything he can to get you away from Jesus Christ. Don't let him. He'll use anything he can. What's the devil using with the, these people to get them away from Christ? What's he using? Angels. Holy angels. Beings that can appear and disappear and fly around through space. Beings that are so bright that humans are terrified when they see them. And these people are taking a good thing. God made angels. They're good things, right? Are we all agreed? Holy angels are good things, and they're turning good things into a very bad thing because the good thing is leading them away from Jesus Christ. It's like the devil looked at angels and he thought for a second, he said, I, I got it. I know how to use them. 
He'll use anything. He'll take any good thing God made, that's all he's got to work with, and turn it into something evil to lead you away from Jesus Christ. Here's a question for you. What is he using in you to try to lead you away from Christ? It might be some evil thing. It might be some lust of the flesh or lust of the eyes. It might be the pride of life. It might be some abominable thing that he's trying to lead you, and you might succumb to that. But it might be, I gotta, it's time for me to bring this one up again. It's been at rest too long. Got to bring it out of my drawer and bring it to you. It might be knitting. Did you know that you can knit your way to hell? Yes. When all of your knitting is never one bit to the glory of God, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. When all your knitting has nothing to do with the glory of God, you're lost, my friend. Knitting. He'll use knitting. Some people love their dogs and their cats more than they love God. He'll use dogs and cats. He'll use all kinds of material things. So it's not always just some terrible lust. Well, that is a lust. It's the lust for knitting. But it's not some ugly, terrible, grotesque thing. It's not some abominable thing. The devil will use anything to get you away from Christ. Here you go. Resist him. Firm in the faith. Take up the weapons of your warfare. Put on the helmet of salvation and refuse to take it off. Put on the breastplate of the righteousness of Christ and refuse to let it go and jumping ahead. Take up the sword of the Spirit and fight that devil. He's roaming about seeking whom he may devour. Put up a fight. He'll use anything to get you away from Christ. Don't let him. Here's a second thing in closing. This is to combat a false philosophy of our day. Humans, I want you to know, are the best thing on the planet. They do some of the most awful stuff, but humans are the best thing on the planet. Contra our day, where there are people who are saying, humans are the worst thing on the planet. We gotta get rid of humans. Humans are the scourge of the planet. You've seen the bumper sticker, save the planet, kill yourself. Of course, the person who made that bumper sticker was still alive, right? Like, kill everybody but me. A friend of ours named Frank, he and his wife and family used to be in this church. They relocated to a church in North Harford County. Bless the Lord, we're still good friends with them. They're great people. But Frank was telling me that when they lived in Seattle, and I think they had four kids then, they have six kids now, but they had four kids, and they'd walk down the street of Seattle, and somebody from across the street would yell, what are you doing? You're ruining the planet by having four kids. Too many people, people are the scourge of the planet. Joe Rogan, I watch him sometimes because he's got some interesting shows sometimes. I keep an eye out, would I like that one? No, 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 yes. And one of the recent yeses was he had Stephen Meyer. Now, Dr. Stephen Meyer is one of the great intelligence design guys. And I thought, oh, I gotta watch that one. I've read a lot of Stephen Meyer, I really dig Stephen Meyer. And at one point, and by the way, Joe, Joe Rogan treated him as a hostile guest the entire podcast. He was never nice to him. He never smiled at him. He was kind of mean to him and blunt and abrupt the whole time. He didn't want his viewers to think he had any affinity for this intelligent design guy, but he had him on. And at one point, Rogan challenged Stephen Meyer and said, you think humans are special? There are other animals that are like us. And he said, what about bonobos? I didn't even know what bonobos were. I had to look up bonobos. 
They're a kind of monkey-like animal. They're supposed to be really smart. Stephen Meyer was too nice to him. He was behaving. I'm on Joe's show. I'll be there. He was really, I wouldn't have been as nice. I would have said, Joe, show me one city they've built. Show me one book they've written. Show me one great piece of art they've produced. Show me a wonderful piece of music they've, they've produced. No, humans are made in God's image. The worst specimen of humanity you ever meet is an astonishing, magnificent being, even in his fallen state and in your fallen state. God put so much glory and honor in humans being made in his image that it still shows through. Humans are the best thing on the planet, even in our fallen state, deeply imbued with glory and honor. So, here's another application of that. Whatever ancestral people, whatever ethnicity, whatever color of skin, whatever socioeconomic level, whatever nation, they are made in God's image, worthy of our respect and honor. They, like us, we are the best thing on the planet. Treat all humans like it. This planet and all in it is made for us. No excuse for poor stewardship, but don't buy the philosophy. Humans, kill yourself, save the planet. Don't buy it. A third and final uh, application, this was an encouragement. Hey, if you are in Jesus Christ, you are headed for astonishing unimaginable, we could have put in a lot of others, unsearchable, unfathomable, unbelievable glory and honor. You, with all your current weaknesses, with the temptations you sometimes give into, with all your fallenness, with all of the degradation of the fall, but you're in Christ, you are headed for that. Unbelievable glory. So be patient with all the trials of this earth. Be patient with persecution that comes from following Christ. Be patient with difficulties. Wait for glory. It won't be long. And when you get there, Romans chapter 5, hope will not disappoint. You won't say, oh, is that all it was? I thought this was going to be something great. No, you'd be amazed. You'll be wowed like this is beyond my imagination that I ever had. So don't leave Jesus Christ because as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 5, there awaits you an eternal weight of glory through Christ Jesus. In Romans 2.7, Paul describes believers in these terms. They are, quote, those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, and he will give them eternal life. What are you seeking? I'm seeking glory and honor and immortality, and Christ has given me eternal life. Stay, my friends. Stay with Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's bow and pray together. Father, thank you for this portion of Scripture. And we pray that it would be used by the Spirit of God to firmly and deeply attach us to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Oh, Lord, by your grace, may none of us walk it back. May none of us depart from Christ. 
We pray for people here who have never come to Christ. Oh Lord, would you use this message to open the eyes of their souls and to give them a longing to know the Lord Jesus. And may they call upon him even now, Lord Jesus, please save me. I'm a sinner. I need you. And Christ saves all who from their hearts call upon him. Father, save sinners in this building today, upstairs and down, we pray. And we also pray that you increase our longing for the world to come and thus our patience with the world we're in. Oh, Father, increase our longing for the honor and the glory that shall be revealed to us in Christ at the last day. We pray with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.